Hello, I'm Jason Dole, Program Director at WJFF, sitting in for Janice Adams on this week's special show. On October 12th, Janice delivered SUNY New Paltz's Distinguished Speaker Lecture. Her speech, titled Know When to Leave the Plantation, was so well received that President Christian asked her to repeat it, allowing more students to hear her. Here's Dr. Christian, continuing his introduction and making a surprise announcement. Janice has been a really engaged uh, SUNY New Paltz alumna. Uh, in addition to this evening and last fall's talk, uh, she's a past participant in our annual Women's Leadership Summit, and she's spoken there about her life and livelihood and offered uh, guidance and advice to current students, men and women alike. The State University of New York will honor her career and life achievements with an honorary doctorate to be awarded at our undergraduate commencement ceremony this spring. The presentation opens with Janice's video on history and healing. When I write, I write from point of healing. Everybody out here has a pain, has an ache that needs to be addressed. For me, it's the obvious. I don't have a problem with being a woman. I don't have a problem with being a black person. I don't have a problem with any of it. But other people have problems that they choose to project on me. And so I write and I speak from a point of recognition and validation for what I, symbolic of millions, am feeling. And I write and speak from a point where we can heal ourselves. We can realize that this trash that is coming out of people's mouths has nothing to do with us and everything to do with them. I refer to being a child and because Dr. King literally raised my chin saying that I was raised by Dr. King, what he was saying was keep your chin up. In saying that he thought I was pretty, he was saying if you keep your chin up, all of us, others can see the beauty that's within us. And so I write and I speak to, to promise to him that I will do that and to encourage others to do that, to be beautiful in themselves and to keep their chins up no matter what is going on around us. President and Mrs. Christian, board members, faculty, staff, students, parents, family, friends, alumni, guests, the entire New Paltz family, this beloved community, thank you for the honor of being this year's distinguished speaker, for the unbelievable privilege of representing the class of 67, I can hardly believe it, for welcoming me home. Special thanks, too, to Barbara Caldwell and Lisa Sandick for the vetting, the fretting, the sweating, the petting that made a path to today. And what a day. Thank you. OMG, it's phenomenal to be here. It's only taken me 50 years to get from that side of the lecture hall to this side of the lectern. Wow. 54 years from the day I arrived on campus in the fall of 1963 to this day. Come, come, come let me tell you a story I would hear my grandmother call when I seemed most in need. Each story, no matter its filigree, would have the same moral, the same reason for being, to share her philosophy of life. All things are one, said my grandmother, in this world, Everything is related. All things are one. Come, come, come let me tell you a story. A story of the history, the history that has brought us together this day. And the theme, know when to leave the plantation. It is not an understanding to which I came quickly or easily. 54 years ago and six weeks ago, late August of 1963, I was on a bus headed to the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. 
54 years and six weeks ago the night before, my aunt put the finishing touches on a pink and white gingham sundress, albeit a sophisticated one, specially made for that momentous day. With it was a matching scarf I'd tie over a twist of braids as long and thick as questions of race. My mom and I left our home in the Bronx at 3 a.m. for the drive to Harlem, where we parked our car, then boarded a chartered bus for D.C. that Wednesday morning. An organizer welcomed us, inducting us for the trip ahead. It would be, he said, a day from which there would be no turning back. Within hours, I knew why my parents had always resisted venturing south by car or bus. Traveling by train, we'd sped past the blood-soaked soil of the northern south, Maryland and Delaware, past signs colored and white, past trees sagged low with the strange fruit of the lynched. By train, we'd bypassed the pain for the promises Washington's architecture evokes, monuments to American freedoms built by Africans enslaved. A northern school desegregation pioneer at eight, this was not my first bout with racism, but that bus ride south was my first time violently denied a restroom or food we could afford to buy. It was my first time to be stormed by screaming white hordes as sheriff's deputies stood idly by. We on the bus were outside agitators, disrupting their way of life. The screamers were American citizens defending their rights. We, said they, were troublemakers. It was 1963. The Freedom Rides were current events then, not history. Those who attacked our bus on that Maryland-Delaware line, that infamous Mason-Dixon line, rocking it from side to side, side to side, intended no lullaby. Lumbering into Washington just before 11, our bus had emerged from the raging flames of hatred, underscoring the need for the march, into the swarm of a cheering throng. So embraced, we in turn welcomed the next bus. Then they then cheered the group after them, and on and on, how we got over, the hymn is sung. How we got over, my soul looks back in wonder, how we got over. Journeying from up south or down north, we traveled a treacherous route, fought the same demons and fears, and we'd made it through. School segregation had been a lonely affair, just one of four little foot soldiers for justice against an army of unapologetic evil I'd been. Getting off the bus in Washington, I came to a mighty awakening. I was not alone. We were not alone. By bus, by train, by plane, people of every hue kept coming. Some on foot, others walked hundreds of miles to get to that day. For hours, speakers and singers, drum majors all, kept a steady beat until the time finally came for Dr. King to ascend the podium. His familiar baritone tuned like none other, he soothed us, rallied us, regaled us, commended us on to heights untold. And when he raised his hand over the crowd, invoking his dream, I felt myself levitate, soar. One among 250,000 united, I understood the movement and this country as never before. I'd begun the day an innocent in braids of and a brand new sundress of pink and white, I would never wear that dress again or my hair in those braids. Little wonder FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover called Nobel Peace Prize Laureate Dr. King the most dangerous man in America. We were all dangerous that day. It was dangerous to threaten and force doctrines of white supremacy, dangerous to meet the demon face to face, yet keep on keeping on our chartered route. That was the promise and the premise of the civil rights movement. 
What I couldn't have imagined 54 years ago, though, is how much and how little has changed. The stereotypical, sadistic southern sheriffs then, the northern police killings and brutality of innocence today, the screamers who rocked our buses then, the Take Back America madmen of Charlottesville today, the sickness that murdered and maimed Emmett Till and exonerated his murderer then, the exoneration of the murderers of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Alton Sterling, and on and on, and too many more. The voting rights we marched for then, the voter ID and gerrymandering siege against voting rights now. Still today, I remember Dr. King, the dream, and the vow he made that March on Washington Day. He said, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. My grandfather took his daughters to march against lynching. My mother took me to march on Washington. My daughters took my granddaughters to march for Trayvon. As people, we take our children where we must. So nurtured, fortified by the dream and the vow, we tend trickling waters in preparation for the stream. That was the power and the passion poured into me and tended for the journey to my first days here at New Paltz. My parents had both graduated college, Hunter College for my mother, Baruch School for my father, but neither had been able to go away to school. So my getting to live on campus was special. Because I was only 16, my mother really didn't want me to be away. But the privilege of it all swayed her decision. Arriving for my first day, I walked into bliss, literally and figuratively, eager to find my room in Bliss Hall, my place in the swirl of the day. I knew what was about to happen. I'd done my research, devoured Seventeen magazine. Of course, there were no black girls in it, but it was for teens, and I was that. In 17, I'd learned that boys would hook up dates for their roommates with their sisters. We'd all double date. Being an only child, I had no brother to offer, but I had my cousins on tap, ready, set, going to college. I was giddy with excitement, giggly, and thrilled. With the school bursting at the seams for the first term under the quarter system, which is what it was then, and the school's first year as a liberal arts college, no longer a normal school or teacher's college, we were packed three to a room. Escorting me to my assigned room, the dorm mother told me to wait outside for a moment. She knocked and went in. When she reopened the door, there stood a girl and her mother. The dorm mother stood aside. The woman motioned me to step forward. I was then put on inspection, top to bottom, as if on an auction block of old, for a decision on whether I was suitable to be in her daughter's presence. She was a white woman, I was a Negro, a thing to be of use or dismissed. After a few sneers and snorts, the woman turned around disgusted. The dorm mother apologized to her for the problem, me. But overbooked as the dorms were, it would be difficult, the dorm mother said, to find a more suitable roommate for her daughter and move me to another room. With that, the transaction was done and I was permitted to stay with the insistence that I would be removed before the next quarter. We did not double date. And my mother, having paid the same tuition, got no such privilege or right of review. Two months later, President Kennedy was assassinated. With the school shut down in the wake of the tragedy, a friend and I headed to my house in the Bronx. We walked in the door. My mother had the TV on. Lee Harvey Oswald walked into view, handcuffed, flanked by two FBI agents. You know the scene. A chubby gray man with a hat moves in from the edge of the screen. Oswald recoils and crumbles. We sat there watching an actual murder on TV. 
in real time. This in a time when international news was still being relayed via black and white newsreels at the movies before a double bill. That moment therefore changed everything. How we felt about ourselves, the hope we had invested into the Kennedy presidency, the relevancy and immediacy of TV. The violence was nothing new though, but the target was different. On TVs, prophetically black and white, we had grown accustomed to watching nightly news clips from the war in Vietnam over dinner. We watched as fire hoses were rained with bone-breaking force on black demonstrators in the war for liberation and against tyranny at home. We watched as loosely leashed police dogs were set upon black teens with the temerity to put their lives on the line for justice. We watched and we watched, taking it all in. Foot soldiers in the war on racism we were. Not every patriot is called to battle abroad. By my junior year, with the war intensifying in Vietnam, we were fearing for our friends and brothers. Would their students' deferments hold? Would they be drafted? We feared for our hope. We feared for our fears. Where would such fear lead the nation and leave us? And what would become of our hero, Cassius Clay, who'd so boldly threatened status quo white supremacy, rejecting his birth name, his slave name, renouncing the old time religion, Christianity, resurrecting himself as Muhammad Ali, a Muslim. I told Jesus, be all right if he changed my name. A spiritual recounts the wrenching decision to escape slavery for freedom. I told Jesus, be all right if he changed my name. He said, your mother won't know your child if I change your name. He said, your father won't know your child if I change your name. He said, your sister, your brother won't know your child. But I told Jesus, be all right if he changed my name. I told Jesus, be all right, if you change my name. Today on the Janice Adams Show, Janice's distinguished speaker lecture at SUNY New Paltz. More after the break. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show. I'm Jason Dole, WJFF Program Director, sitting in on this special broadcast of Janice's Distinguished Speaker Lecture at SUNY New Paltz. Know when to leave the plantation. Changing his name, Ali refused the draft, refused to go to Vietnam, declared himself a conscientious objector, and stated his reason. My conscience won't let me go shoot some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big powerful America. And shoot them for what, he said. They never called me nigger. They never lynched me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality, rape my mother, kill my father. What I want to go shoot them for? What? What I got to shoot them for? Poor little black people, little babies and children. How can I go shoot those poor people? Just take me to jail, he said. Ali was not alone. Black people, people of conscience of every hue, filled the jails by the thousands for the sins of America at home and abroad. Even Dr. King took a knee at the Pettus Bridge before sheriffs, their dogs and deputies reign terror in what is today emblazoned in the historical record as Bloody Sunday. And all for what? For civil rights? For, let us be clear, human rights. For America's human rights violations here at home. Muhammad Ali, 
The Viet Cong never called me nigger then. Dr. King's anti-war sermons on conscience. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Kepernick and other athletes taking a knee now. Sadistic sheriffs, Bull Connors dogs and mass arrests then. Joe Arpaio, stop and frisk provocations. Police killings of unarmed blacks now. And a president openly calling for police violence and intimidation now. Those were the times in which I came of age. Those were the times that educated me. And as a boisterous call for America gone back is raised now, those are the times I fear that are conspiring to educate you now. So how do we serve, protect, and defend fundamental human rights of every one of us. That is why we're having this talk right now. There is, in the Akan language of Ghana, a term for it, Sankofa. Go back to go forward. To move forward, we must understand the past so as to chart a future. A road leads to Kingston but before you leave the town, you will pass by a White House that is loved the whole year round. This house isn't common, isn't made of brick or stone. It's made from devotion and a love that's all their own. I don't believe I really still remember the lyrics to that sorority song. As a sophomore, I pledged Clio sorority. Diana Jackson and I, two firsts as black girls in what had prided itself as a lily-white sorority, I moved off campus to Clio House, the three-story, double-wide white house with yellow shutters that's still out there on Route 32, and discovered Huguenot Street. When I could, I'd walk to Huguenot Street and fall in love with its stone houses, knowing only the part of the history that did not mention the slaughter of Native Americans and the enslavement of blacks, unfortunately. But a shout out to Mary Etta Schneider and the team that is now rectifying that. But back then, I didn't know about that history. No one who was anyone acknowledged the North's role in slavery back then. I just walked that street, take in the calm, sit by the water's edge. I'd look out at Mount Mohonk, breathe, detox, seeking solace from the pressures of the day and the times. But most nights, having declared my theater major, I was at the theater. One night, realizing that the stage manager had again forgotten to turn in my hours, extended curfew, I raced through the streets. A quick aside, in those good old days when girls' dorms had curfew and boys didn't, when girls would be campused, forced to stay in at night for violating a curfew not imposed on boys, those good old take America back two days. <laughs> well, this particular night, in danger of being campused for violating curfew, realizing what had happened with my hours, I fled into the night, across the rain-soaked campus drenched. As I exited campus for town, a state car pulled up next to me. The man asked why I was out so late where I was going, then told me to jump in and he'd take me to Clio House. Another quick aside, at freshman orientation, we'd been told that if we ever needed help, a state vehicle was like a police car, a vehicle loaned out to faculty and state employees on official business. We could ask and trust the driver for help. So when that car pulled up, I was grateful for the rescue and got into the car. When he took the shortcut where Plattick Hill crosses Maine, becomes church, and goes down to North Pleasant, I knew he belonged here and exhaled. He was polite and took me straight to Clio House. I thanked him and turned to get out. As I did, he reached under my raincoat, between my legs, pulled me back into the car, slammed his foot on the gas, and sped off the door flapping. I got away finally by stabbing him with my umbrella. I ran as fast as I could back to Clio House where I told the house mother what had happened and she called the police. The police asked for a description of my attacker. Apple picker? 
apple picker was the derisive term used in a farm region wholly dependent on the labor of black, Latino, and Chicano migrant workers who came to town seasonally to pick fruit and suffer contempt. No, he wasn't a migrant worker, I said. It was a state car. The two policemen grew anxious. Did I have the plate number? I didn't. Could I describe the driver? I could. He appeared to be a professor, an official, or someone like that. He had on a dark gray suit. He had dark wavy hair brushed back. His briefcase was on the back seat. Then what was he? He was white, I said. Why, you little whore, one of the officers growled, slamming down his notebook. As he and his partner got up to leave, he turned back for the kill. You think I'm going to ruin a good man's life for a whore like you? And they were gone. Within days, so was I. Opening the shower curtain one night to find a large turtle one of the girls had put there for a swim, I went into breakdown, fleeing blind into the streets. To this day, I can still see my attacker, but I only have spurts of recall of what happened that night, where I ran, how I got back to the house, how I got to bed. I woke up the next day with mom leaning over me, smoothing my hair, cooing, wake up. You can wake up now, mom's here. So great was the shock that I still don't know how all that happened that night, but I do know this. Even when life delivers its worst, there are those among us who bring to it their best. Someone rescued me that night. I never found out who. If you know, if you are here, I thank you. If you know who it was and you can tell me, I will be ever grateful. But after the soothing came the reality. Mom, grieving, had to tell me the facts of racist, sexist life. Facts we still see every time there's another revelation about a powerful predator, a Harvey Weinstein, a Bill O'Reilly, I won't name the rest, but others of privilege and power. My father had died young. Mom was carrying the full load. We simply could not afford for me to transfer schools. My credits wouldn't be transferable. I would lose a year, meaning if I transferred, I would have to make up at least a year's credits and pay full tuition for a fifth year at another school. Plus, there was the danger. To pursue my attacker, to fight for justice, made me vulnerable to the very police who'd called me a whore. The men who'd put me on notice that I was powerless to fight because they intended to stand in my way. As it was, mom and I paid the price of tuition, room, and board for an extra quarter. With no campus sexual harassment policy at the time and no way to turn beyond mom for consolation and counseling, the dean trying to help reduced my course load, hoping to reduce the pressure on me. I walked in June, but my official graduation date was August. Auction block, attempted rape, police misconduct and the threat of backlash, hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag Me Too. I left campus and never came back for 40 years, not even for a drive through town. Then in 2010, I found myself drawn to living in the place I had once thought so beautiful, so peaceful, and so loved. I moved to Woodstock searching. There was unfinished business for me here. I could feel it. The Saturday after I first delivered this lecture, I attended my first class reunion in 50 years. It has indeed been a long walk to this lectern. In this world, my grandmother said, all things are one. In this world, my grandfather said, let no one contaminate your mind. The turning point came about 10 years ago 
when I learned that librarian Corinne Nyquist at the new, new to me Sojourner Truth Library had researched, documented, and posted a Sojourner Truth travelogue website. It's amazing. Check it out. Having written a history of African-American women, Sister Days, I was thrilled. I called Dr. Nyquist, and she was thoroughly generous. We spent an afternoon driving from historic site to site. Corinne Nyquist is in the audience. Please thank her for me. Thank you, Corinne. Where are you? Where are you? She's too shy to stand up, but we are delighted that she's here, and I thank her for bringing me back. She brought me back to New Paltz and gave me a link, a point of reference, yes, I'd been craving. Only then did I know that I had been walking in the footsteps of one of my sheroes, Sojourner Truth, on my walks down Huguenot Street, walking by the waters for solace, overlooking the mountains. I look to the hills from whence cometh my strength. Raised Episcopalian, I'm not a religious person, but it's amazing what comes back to you when you need it most. Where I sat was such a peaceful spot that she too must have gone there for one of her now famous talks with God. Corinne Nyquist welcomed me back to New Paltz and gave me back some of my fondest memories I so thank her for that. The concert hall in the arts building, I opened that hall, performing a two-piano version of the Schumann Piano Concerto in A minor, with Dr. Robert Mumper playing second piano. He brought me into the fold and made a place for me. I thank him for that. She gave me, too, the gift of the memory of being in the theater department that was then chaired by Dr. Charles Scott. He assured me the safe space of the theater, even an attacker could not sully, and he was fierce in his determination to do so. There were friends, Mike Posse, especially Connie Frazier, who took me under her wing that first day I arrived on campus and told me, don't you worry about that mean woman, you stick with me. Thank you, Connie, right there, We've been friends ever since. With Comedy's friendship, with Corinne's gift, came another. As a historian, I'd written of our glory days, inspirations that spoke of the power and agency of African Americans in the worst, most oppressive of times. But more than the power, as I confronted my own history, what I needed was the healing, and that's why I'm here today. Fifty years after I graduated, I know you, today's students, face challenges my generation fought to ensure you'd never see. And I take it personally. I'm angry that 50 years later, painful memories of my life and times are not irrelevant to you. When Barbara Caldwell invited me to meet her for what would be the beginning of the process that has brought me here today, and I thank Barbara that. We're happy to miss her. She's in Florida doing college business. I was driving through Ellenville when I saw two police officers engaging in such an obvious and disgusting abuse of power, harassing a young black man. They'd stopped him, forced him out of his car, and frisked him in what could only be called a sexual assault. I know what it means to have a son, and employees stopped and frisked for DWB driving while black. Ellenville is vulgar and guilty of that practice, and I saw it for myself. And I'm speaking of it now because there are students on this campus who need to be believed and supported, validated and defended when they speak of such violations. They need compassion, yes, but they also need power to speak to power. It happens far too often. So yes, I want my pain to be foreign, to be irrelevant, but I know it is not. Whether black or Latino, Chicano or Middle Eastern, Muslim, LGBTQ or whatever this earth gave you to be, that people with problems and privileges want to harass you for, 
in this world, yes, all things are one. Let no one contaminate your mind. In this world too, said my granduncle, delivering and rescuing me with the mantra I now give you, know when to leave the plantation. Today on the Janice Adams Show, Janice's distinguished speaker lecture at SUNY New Paltz. More after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show. I'm Jason Dole, WJFF Program Director, sitting in on this special broadcast of Janice's Distinguished Speaker Lecture at SUNY New Paltz. Know when to leave the plantation. Leaving the plantation behind isn't just for black people, it's for everyone. As Mark Twain would write, referencing the post-Civil War, post-emancipation proclamation scene in a chapter of Life on the Mississippi suppressed for years for its pungency by the publisher, Twain said, I missed one thing in the South, African slavery. That horror is gone and permanently. Therefore, half the South is at last emancipated. Half the South is free. But the white half is apparently as far from emancipation as ever. Was Twain speaking of all whites? Obviously not. Twain was white. A large number of abolitionists were white, just as in years to come, human rights activists of courage would know no bounds of color. But Twain was speaking about most whites, countrymen of his time, without whom this democracy, this way of life, would not have persisted as long as it has. Twain was talking about a societal slave mentality, a continued dependence for, need for, being on the dole of a system rooted in slavery, in exploitation, oppression, unfettered privilege, and injustice. Know when to leave the plantation. Yes, it's a provocative title, because we live in provocative, tremulous times. There's a lot going on that, let's be honest, harkens back to the plantation system of the South and the industrialization of the North, which provided the whips, chains, lashes, and legislative cover to keep the South going and growing. There are the legacies that have still not gone away, the deficits in culture still not corrected, so what is the plantation? A plantation is a manufacturing plant, self-contained, exploitive of its workers, sanctioned under cloak of law. It is a place that divides and conquers its workers by race, indentured whites versus enslaved blacks, poor whites versus segregated blacks. Even oppression has its privileges. It is a place that is maintained by terror, and terrible acts, not only that impact the people who are the victims of the plantation, but that impact those who live in the mindset that perpetrates and perpetuates what a plantation is and what it does. It's amazing that in America, in our culture, still some people look on the plantation as a romantic place. It was not. It was a place of terror and terrible exploitive violent acts. That's the only way you can maintain millions of people enslaved, working for nothing, never being able to control their own lives. That's what the plantation was. Today, what is the plantation? It's mass incarceration. It's police who feel in entitled to brutalize and kill people on account of race or gender bias, Islamophobia, whatever. Michael Brown and Eric Garner were black and big. Mike Brown was killed for what? Were he a white kid, would have been shrugged off with the boys will be boys. Now put it back and we're calling your parents attitude. Instead, he was given the death penalty for, it is said, robbing some cigars. Eric Garner was jumped and strangled, given the death penalty for selling some loose cigarettes. Each time, officers defended their behavior, saying they felt threatened. Threatened by what? 
by their own racial animus and fears, by history, by the plantation system that still rules. The plantation is those who commit such acts and those who justify the contempt for human life and decency such acts represent. What is the plantation? It is our educational system where children are not given equal access to education, where some teachers actually believe that some children cannot learn and teach them accordingly. The plantations is the health system, where some people, in fact, there's even been a recent study that blacks are less likely even now to be given pain medication than whites. Why? That's the plantation system with its odious, persistent lies. Blacks don't have to be treated as human because blacks don't feel pain. That was the justification for enslavement and torment. Today, forget that the opioid epidemic among whites is an illness and the heroin epidemic among blacks was criminal. Forget that cocaine, predominantly used by whites, gets a slap on the wrist. That crack cocaine, predominantly used by blacks, gets prison time. Why? America's history of medical injustice and experimentation on involuntary black subjects is long. Another example, from slavery through the mid-20th century, scholars have even confirmed that America's plantation legacy inspired Nazi experimentation on Jewish prisoners. In gynecology, J. Marion Sims, the father of gynecology, a white 19th century doctor who performed surgical experiments on enslaved black women without anesthesia. He purchased and performed genital surgeries without anesthesia because blacks don't feel pain. And yes, women today, especially black women, have protested the monument to him in Central Park. Birth control. Puerto Rico was used as a testing ground. Syphilis, not only the, the syphilis study at Tuskegee, but a similar one was performed on unwitting Guatemalans. And on and on. Why? It all goes back to the plantation. All the lies, the deceits, the denial. Why? As one school administrator told me, Quote, parents and teachers are afraid that if we tell the children the truth, they'll think their ancestors were bad, end quote. And so generations of children of color, people of color, have been sacrificed at a blockade of lies so that some children could be raised free from truth. So where do we go from here? As historians know, if you really want to end racism, sexism, any of our isms, stop teaching American history as it's traditionally been taught. Devoid of Native Americans, of blacks, of women, of Latinos and Chicanos, of Asians, devoid of the repercussions of greatness. <coughs> but history, it is said, is written by the winners. Well, what an admission. The history we generally know, the history we quote, owed to national pride, is long untruthiness. Thank you, Stephen Colbert, arguably one of the most profound <laughs> philosophers of our day. <laughs> These are the legacies we see in every sector of American society. And so the time has come. Hashtag time's up. Yes. It's time to know that. It is time to leave the plantation behind. And what does it mean to leave the plantation? What does it mean to leave? In the case of Reverend Hermanus Lawrence, whose record for creating the most Seventh-day Adventist congregation still stands after a century, my Uncle Hermie, he put his faith in the good book, he said, his pistol too. Always sleep with one eye open, daughter, he'd say. This a reflection of his years spent on the road, a lone black minister traveling the unreconstructed Jim Crow South. But he did it. Cyril Lucas, another uncle, narrowly escaped being killed by plantation owners in his native 
and British colonized St. Kitts, where as a young man he was organizing his fellow workers for better conditions and wages. Having to flee to the United States in the dead of night, he confirmed the family mantra, no one to leave the plantation. He also added, I know I will succeed here because you love me so. That was the letter he wrote to his fiance aboard the Parima as the Statue of Liberty came into view. And succeed he did, becoming a lawyer, then the first black minister in the Lutheran Conference. It's not about who we hate, it's about who we are brave enough to love, our friends, the future, possibility. To leave the plantation means to liberate ourselves, no matter the risk. The risk is there anyway. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Leave. Oh, sinner, don't let this moment pass. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning, for the work is almost done. Such hymns, the sacred African-American spirituals we now know, were codes of escape. They were about leaving. Directives passed on to help freedom seekers on their way. Wade in the water. Wade in the water, children. Wade in the water. God's gone trouble the water. Now, for those who left the plantation, there was that moment of time, it couldn't happen at any time, but the right time. The signs, signals, and codes had to be right for them to be able to leave the plantation. My Lord, he calls me. He calls me by the thunder, the trouble, the furious storms. The trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. Steal away, steal away, steal away to Jesus. As important as the timing, the mindset had to be right. People had to be willing to say, there's nothing here for me. Yes, I'm putting my life on the line, but I'm putting my life on and limb on the line if I stay as well. And certain people did leave the plantation. They weren't all successful, but they made the effort to leave and others helped them. And those who left, like Harriet Tubman, Josiah Henson, even Frederick Douglass, risked hard-won freedoms as Underground Railroad conductors. They did. No man is free, said Dr. King, until all are free. Today, called by the thunder, the Trump, the Trumpets, and the trumpets. No matter the backsliding of our society, it is time to know that it is time to leave the plantation behind, to love each other, respect each other, make a way out of no way for each other. This gift from the civil rights movement to hashtag Black Lives Matters and hashtag Me Too ain't gonna let Nobody, turn me round, yes, turn me round, turn me round, ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. Keep on a walking, keep on a talking, walking down the freedom trail. Here at New Paltz, diversity and inclusion are keywords. Make your movement right here. Practice your craft of justice here. Build your boards of directors here, your circles of friends, underground railroad cells with roots dug deep, with roots built strong to keep each other on that freedom trail. Explore, discover together the goodness, really, that represents what that Underground Railroad was. The shared commitment to justice, which is what it was about, to human rights, to yourselves. Conscience, commitment, courage, creativity, critical thinking, nonviolent conflict resolution. Those are the pillars on which I built my children's publishing company. They work just as well for adults, too. Conscience, commitment, courage, 
creativity, critical thinking, and nonviolent conflict resolution. Coming to grips with that marked the start of a whole new life for me. Writing, as Alice Walker said, saved me from the sin and inconvenience of violence. That too. Confronting my history, my history, changed my life. Now, in the spirit of the Underground Railroad, I help free others on my route. I tell them what I've come to know. As a black person, I can say, we have been demeaned as slaves as though the shame of those who would mock us could take the measure of our lives. We have been segregated as less than, as though the blindness of those who would demean us could share the vision of all we survey. We have known the depths of despair, yet we lift ourselves up through the legacy of our past and the promise of our future. O oh, ye sons and daughters of Africa, congratulations. O oh, ye sons and daughters of the indigenous nations of South and Latin America, of Asia, of Europe, of every race, ability, gender, identity, faith, and imagination. Congratulations. Do you know what a mighty people we are? This little light of mine, I think to myself, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, we must each say to ourselves, I'm going to let it shine. And I'm going to ask you to sing it with me because it's important. This little light of mine, yes. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, yes. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Everywhere I go, everywhere I go, I'm going to let it shine, yes. Everywhere I go, I'm going to let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. I thank you for being here tonight. Today on The Janice Adams Show, know when to leave the plantation. Janice's distinguished speaker lecture delivered before a live audience at SUNY New Paltz. To watch Janice's full speech, visit her website, JaniceAdams.com. From the studios at WJFF, I'm Jason Dole. Thank you for joining us today. The Janice Adams Show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC. All rights reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what... <laughs>